Listener Production. Automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. For this episode, I'm on the Gold Coast to catch up with an old colleague, the 1980 Formula One world champion, Alan Jones. For many years, we shared the desk at Channel 10 covering the sport. AJ came through an era of hard races, no quarter given, unafraid to shape up to rivals, and no BS when he spoke about the sport. He still has, as you'll hear, that straight-talking style which many fans admire. He shared the track with some absolute legends back in the day. We'll talk about a few of those. And he very proudly gave one of the sport's most famous teams, Williams, its first world title. And Alan Jones from Australia in the British Saudi Williams has won the Grand Prix. We'll reflect on the passing of Sir Frank and his recollections of working with the technically innovative Patrick Head. The cars were very different back then. Alan came through a pioneering period of development and F1 was at the cutting edge of that exploration. He even tested a six-wheeler at one point. At the peak of his powers, he shocked everyone by stepping away from Formula One in the early 80s, seemingly worn out with life in the old dart, England, and in need of a recharge at home in Australia. He would be lured back when he didn't get the same buzz from specialist cattle farming, of all things, but the comeback didn't yield another world title, and he definitely had more than one in him. There were overtures from Ferrari and a funny story about a supposedly secret meeting with Enzo. He freakishly missed being on that ill-fated flight with Graham Hill. And in another flying story, he had his own plane on standby when he knew that it would be a frustratingly uncompetitive showing for the Beatrice Lola. There were stints at Bathurst, in touring cars, and with the late Darrell Eastlake and Barry Sheen covering the sport for Channel 9. Now, some of you have sent in questions. I can't get to all of them, but we've weaved in a few into the discussion. I sense that AJ isn't doing a huge amount of these interviews anymore, so we're very proud to get him on. Remember to keep it in perspective. He's frank, he's earned the right to his opinion, and come through that very different era I spoke about. We begin with his thoughts on the new generation of F1 cars and if he feels they've made a step in the right direction. Well, with all due respect, Greg, I mean, I've been saying this for 10 years. Mm. I mean, the car needs to be less aerodynamically dependent and and more reliable on mechanical grip. And that's exactly what they've endeavoured to do. And it makes you be able to follow the car in front a lot closer. Uh, And who knows, they might even get back to an anomaly called overtaking. (laughs) (laughs) The, the question that we've had from, uh, from one listener, Jack Byrne, he wondered, would you have been, you know, if, if you could change eras and do it all again with these new cars, would you kind of commit to running the new cars? Do they appeal to you? Would you make the same sacrifices to run what we're seeing in, in, 20, in, the, in the current era? Well, it's a, it's a very difficult question because, I mean, you change with age. I mean, obviously, when you're younger, you'd walk over broken glass yeah. uh, to get into Formula One, and then you'd do likewise to get into a competitive car. As you get older, you probably get a bit wiser. I don't really know, but um, it still appeals to me. I mean, I really wish that I was young enough and fit enough uh, to be able to hop in one and have a go. Yeah. 
You've been at the Saudi Arabia race in, uh, in, in the last sort of six months or so. You're going to the Albert Park Grand Prix in Australia, which is terrific. How have you been and, and are you looking forward to, to your home race? Uh, well, I've been pretty good. You know, I mean, I've had a couple of medical issues, not 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 death-defying or anything, but I, I guess when you get to be my age, you're always going to have a few things uh, like an old car, you know. <laughs> um, but, uh, sorry, mate. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, as far as the Melbourne Grand Prix is concerned, I'm looking forward to seeing these new cars because obviously the last one I went to was the Saudi Grand Prix, which is six, five, six months ago. So I'm looking forward to seeing these new cars in the flesh. Um, as far as going to Albert Park's concerned, I'm not all that fussed about that, but um, I'm just looking forward to seeing the cars. Do you watch Drive to Survive, and what do you think of the modern-day Formula One personalities? Because you're always a straight shooter, and I, I, I love the style that you brought during your era, but it's it's different now. It's a big show, mate, in that regard, isn't it? Well, that's, you've hit the nail on the head. It's a show. It's a big show. Um, I have not seen one episode of it because I... I mean, I'll watch Formula One, I'll watch MotoGP, which is my preference now. I'll watch it all night, all day, every day. Um, but I just don't like the theatrics of it all now. I mean, pretty soon they'll all be turning up with their own makeup artists. I'm sure Lewis does that anyway, but certainly with his jewellery advisor. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I like the aspect of the cars, and but I, I just don't like a lot of the peripheral crap that goes on with Formula One at the moment. I used the word sacrifice there before. You made a lot of that when you were we, you were younger. People would be quite intrigued. I think you literally went to England with like 50 quid in your back pocket. Is that right? I did. And it wasn't by choosing, obviously. <laughs> um, my old man very inconveniently went broke on me. Um, so I, I took off over there on the basis. And I must admit I did that because he said he would send me money periodically for me to survive, which he forgot to do on several occasions. Um, but no, I mean, it taught me a great lesson in life. You know, it, uh, I got together with an old friend of mine, uh, boyhood friend, Brian Maguire. We bought and sold minivans and caravans and so forth. And, uh, and it, You did quite well out of that, I think, you guys, too, for sort of in your late teens. It turned into a, a good little thing, didn't it? Oh, massive. Um, Brian went on to uh, become really big in it. He owned a company called Windmill Caravans and um, made a lot of money. He bought a Williams and raced it in the English Formula One. Excuse my dogs barking in the background. I'll just get out and kill them in a minute. Um, no, but, you know, we used to buy and sell them. We used to buy them on the Thursday or Wednesday, run a hose over them, drive them down to Wills Court, park them on the curb with a for sale sign on them, and by Saturday or Sunday, 95% of them were sold. And we used to make good money. I mean, at one point, Brian and I remember one weekend we made two grand each, pounds, uh, and that was a long time ago. A lot of money. I mean, that would be the equivalent of making 20 grand or something. Now, I'm not sure... But uh, because of that, I was able to sort of buy my first Formula Ford, Formula 3 and, and get into racing. But mind you, for every pound I earned, I probably spent two on motorsport. But uh, it, was, it was my passion, still is. Your dad was, was a, uh, a tough but, but fair man. And did he really mould you in many ways? Are you of the same mould as, as Stan? I don't know. All I know is that he used to abuse me if I did something wrong and not necessarily praise me if I did something right. Um, he was a very hard taskmaster. Um, he, he was a tough sort of an individual. He, he um, very hard man. You know, on a few occasions I'd be driving down the street in Richmond or somewhere and there'd be a blue outside a pub and the old man would deem the bloke that was winning to be too big so he'd stop the car and get into him. <laughs> uh, he was a shocker. Um, 
but uh, you know he was a very very kind man very um, he uh, very generous man mm. you know he was if he saw someone down on his luck he'd stop and give him some money or whatever um, very very generous mm. bit of bit of a funny bloke in a lot of ways you snuck his car out i think on occasions too didn't you did you take it to calder and, and race it and things like that oh no that was with his permission i did that um but i i mean, he bought a brand new lancia aurelia uh back from uh, europe when he did the monte carlo rally with tony gaze and lex davison and he had it parked up the driveway and i rolled it all the way all the way down the drive and down the street and nearly crashed it and i think i was only about 12 or something i'm 11 <laughs> Um, but no, uh, he had um, the old Cooper Climax at home and a couple of other cars and there was a race meeting on down at Calder so he allowed me to, I had no idea, I didn't know what the tyre pressure should be, didn't have any goggles so I wore sunglasses you know, which was an absolute stupid, like if I got a, you know, I would have ended up by Helmut Marco if I got a stone. Um, yeah, so uh, in that respect and then he did actually uh, finance a, a Morris 850, which we bought from a finance company, and it had the engine in the boot. So we gave it to um, Brian Sampson, uh, a guy in Melbourne who was very good at tuning. And the old man just said, oh, look, turn it into a little race-winning car. And I, he had no idea what it was going to cost. Completely shit himself when he got the bill because I think he thought, well, Morris 850, and what can it cost? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, and then that was my very first race car, and I raced it at the Geelong Sprints. Amazing. In the in the English chapter for you, or the European chapter, I mean, no internet back then, no mobile phones, things like that. You talked about the the business that you had and how that that helped get things going. But how did you stitch some of the race deals together? Were you good at the at the hustle and learning to talk to people about the commercial side of the of the game? Well, you had to be. Mm. You know, I mean. Uh, I, I keep saying to Christian, you've got to work the paddock, mm. you know, and he says, what do you mean? I said, well, what I mean is you've got to work the paddock, you idiot, <laughs> you know, like uh, I don't know how to. But, you know, I always made a point of, you know, if I went to a race meeting, going and talking to people and making sure I introduced myself. And uh, there was a couple of occasions where I was, I raced a former Atlantic car at um, Silverstone. Mm. And these guys, I had a phone call from someone at March that said, this guy bought a March, a second-hand one, uh, he wants the driver. And um, I'd been doing a lot of testing for March down at Goodwood and everything. They said, go down and you know, ha- have a talk with him, see what he thinks. So I got the address and I went down there and there was this Nestle um, truck parked outside this address. <laughs> and I thought, oh, maybe he's a distributor or something. I don't, that was the transporter. And um, he, at that stage, I didn't have much of a choice. But it was a it was a, a march with a Ryan Falcon a body on it, and um, so I agreed to race it at Silverstone for an Atlantic race there, and we were lucky enough to win the race. Um, which there's been a few things in my career which have been a little bit of a turning point, that, mm-hmm. you know, and so I gave them a list of things to do uh, for the next for the next race meeting, uh, which was at Alton Park. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I drove all the way up to Alton, and there it was in the transporter. It hadn't been taken out from the time I finished the race at Silverstone, and to the extent where some of the wishbones had a bit of rust on them and everything. Well, well, I, I just said, you, you blokes are kidding, aren't you? I said, look, I'll, I'll give 110%, but, you know, if you guys aren't going to prepare the car for me, just forget it. The point I'm making is that I refused to drive the car, but then I made bloody sure that I went around the paddock and told everybody why I wasn't driving the car mm. and that they weren't doing, they weren't giving their part and I was giving my part. Mm. And that made people sit up and think, well, you know, he, he's obviously fair dinkum about all of this. Mm. And um, 
I it was only about a week later that I had a phone call from Harry Stiller that said, um, we've got this march. And I knew he had this bloody march. It was a brand new state-of-the-art bloody mm. thing. And um, we're having a... Bev Bond, who was driving for him, is having a lot of trouble with understeer. Uh, can you come up and... Because uh, I've been doing a lot of testing for marches. I just said to you. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, sure. So I rung up Robin Hurd and said, Robin, can you do me a favour and meet me at Silverstone? Um, and he knew Harry Stiller, obviously. Um and give me a bit of a hand to to tune this thing up or get it going. He said, yeah, no worries. Robin was fantastic like that. So we met and I jumped in it and it didn't have that much understeer, but it had a bit, so we just tuned that out of it. And I ended up by going about a second under what the qualifying time was for the last race. Mm. Bev Bond immediately became team manager (laughs) (laughs) and I became the driver. (laughs) We try and teach kids now about, um, you know, resilience, perseverance. I mean, you talked about some of the little challenges along the way there and how you you absolutely kept at it. Did you ever... um, get disenchanted and think, oh, I, I can't keep doing this, I can't keep going, or you, or you just kept at it? Both. Mm. Uh, I, I got disenchanted, I got, uh, I got very down. Uh, when you're an Australian living on the other side of the world, mm. you haven't got mum to run home to, they have the roast meal. Mm. Um, all you've got is a grubby little flat somewhere. Um, so you get pretty disenchanted quite easily. But I, I think, I don't know whether it was ego, stupidity, ignorance, I, I don't really know, maybe a mixture of all, but... Um, I just was never going to give up, mm. and uh, I kept, you know, I used to, uh, even when I got a vegan tuned Formula 3 engine out of George Robinson, I used to ring up George every day without fail for half an hour, 45 minutes after dinner, and have a chat with him, mm. um, because you know, George did me a huge favour, he introduced me to uh, GRD, mm. he told them that if they supplied me with the works car, chassis, he would supply me with the, with the engine. And that together gave me the Works GRD drive, mm. uh, which in turn was sort of responsible for me meeting Harry, Harry Stiller in a funny story. So that's how things turn around. But uh, no, I was always very determined, never always very determined. To top up the bank balance during some of that that early phase, you would do sometimes two things. You know, thing immediately what springs to mind is going off and doing Can Am, for example. And there's a there's a title win there. People would love to know about those cars. Did you enjoy driving them? What was that What was that like? I love driving the Can Am cars, and how that came around was that when I won the '77 Austrian Grand Prix for Shadow, mm. Don Nichols, who was the owner of Shadow said, Alan, would you come over and drive the Can-Am car at um, Ontario, I think it was, or somewhere like that? I think he might have had a bit of a blue with Jackie Oliver, hadn't paid him or something, and Jackie had obviously said, well, I'm not driving unless you pay me. (laughs) So Don Nichols, I'll get stupid in. Um, So he said, I'll fly you over first class. You know, I'd never flown first class. And um, I remember hopping on the jumbo and they had this great big bowl of champagne in the middle. And I said, how long has all this been going on? (laughs) So I, uh, I raced the car at Mossport and um, did reasonably well. I think I qualified at second or third. Um, and then he said he had a newer model, single sort of singer type uh, one, uh, for Riverside. And I've always I like Riverside. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, sure. So I went over and did Riverside. And it was because of that that I qualified on the front row of the grid, and gave the Hass car a bit of a hassle. Excuse the pun. Um, that I got to know Carl Hass oh, quite yeah. well, and he asked me if I'd like to drive for him. Um, in in the 78 thing and 
at that stage it was 1977 and I was driving for Shadow and there was all sorts of things going on. I'd never, I hadn't completely done a deal for Formula One. I was talking to a few people, but nothing concrete. So I thought, right, I'll agree to a deal with Carl because at least that gives me a drive for 78. Uh, and then it, because if nothing comes in Formula One, I've got an income and I'm, I'm doing Formula, I'm doing Can Am. So um, as it turned out, I did the deal with um, Frank Williams uh, and he allowed me to do Can-Am, which is a little bit unusual, mm. you know. So, uh, yeah, and I ended up by winning the Can-Am Championship, which, and I loved, I like racing in America because when you've been living in England for the amount of time I was, the weather was pathetic and you'd go across to America, the weather would be a lot better and you'd have hamburgers and things like that, mm. sort of soggy old bloody things. Um, and then I did reasonably well in Formula One in terms of, you know, we had that little 06 up where it shouldn't have been. So really from that point on it was it was onwards and upwards. Alan Jones is truly one of the greats. There's no joke this time, just appreciating the legend and all he's done for Aussie motorsport. Thanks, Alan. Came through a great period of innovation in the sport as well in, in all sorts of ways. I think you've reflected somewhere about Patrick Head maybe even working with Balsa at one point and, and stuff like that. Were there, were there some innovations at the time where you were like, far out, I'm not sure about this, and they worked or, you know, maybe even the other way that you thought were, were ridiculous? No, not really. I mean, I had an unbelievable faith in Patrick. I mean, he was fantastic. Uh, you talk about Bolsa, that was at uh, Rickard. We went down there testing, and uh, Patrick wanted to try longer side uh, on, the, on the wing at the back. He wanted to put side yeah, planes, or planes yeah, right, that went much further down towards the ground, um, and they were made of wood. And I said, Patrick, what's going on here? <laughs> and then Patrick, being p- typical Patrick, he said, oh, you know, Bloody war planes were made of wood and this. And anyway, by the time he'd finished, <laughs> I thought they were the business. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, anyway, we tested all day and that was one of the... I always remember that day because we started at 8.30 in the morning and finished at 7 at night. Christ. And I think I had half an hour out of the car for lunch. Uh, we went back to the motel that night and I just collapsed and slept in my clothes. So it was just day. It was a huge day. Mm-hmm. Never done so many Ks in a car in my life with, mm-hmm. without hopping out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we were just determined to get the most out of the car and try whatever is necessary uh, to get the job done. I'm glad you bring him up, and I'd like to talk about Frank as well because, you know, sadly we lost him in um, in November last year. But Patrick was always very... And I I think he quite liked that cat, that, that quality about him. He was very... Um, the driver's just like like a part of the car. They're replaceable. You could be a bit like a light bulb, I think you used to say. We could change light bulbs if we need to, wouldn't he? Well, yeah, I mean, Patrick was very, very competitive. So was Frank, but probably not not quite so verbal you know like I remember uh, I went wide and uh, my back left hand wheel scraped the wall at Long Beach <laughs> you'd think I'd written the thing off yeah what the bloody hell are you doing you know, I said Patrick I'm trying mate like when you try sometimes it just a little bit wide you know mm. anyway what used to happen then if we had a mechanical failure I'd go up to him and say Patrick what the bloody hell do you think you're doing and I got to the stage we'd say Patrick Alan won Patrick nil you know, <laughs> uh, and, and that sort of that, that lightened it up a little bit so we had, we had a great, we had a great relationship but mm. we both knew that we were super super competitive and uh, didn't take losing lightly at all 
weren't very phys- philosophical about it. You did some wonderful things for the Williams family, notably winning their, their first world title, mate, in, in 1980. Sadly, he left us in, in November last year. Just a couple of little recollections on Sir Frank Williams, if you, if you can. Oh, well, look, what do you say about Frank? I mean, he was just a racer. He was just a complete racer. Like, how he continued on for the time that he did, I do not know. An able-bodied man. Uh, I mean, that's why Patrick gave it up. That's one of the reasons I gave it up. I just couldn't stand the crowds, the aggravation. Um, I mean, you'd go to Monaco, there's all those steps and all these people around you and the politics and all the bullshit you had to go through. And he was in a wheelchair. I mean unbelievable but he was such a racer uh that he used to cut through all of that and uh you talk about uh i mean he used to go down to saudi arabia and when he was trying to get sponsorship for the car uh they would tell him to come down say on the wednesday and put him in the wait waiting room at one of their offices they wouldn't see him until the friday and and they'd have the audacity to walk past him knowing that he was there and he knew that they knew that they were there it was some silly test they were putting him through i don't really know uh, but he, oh, Frank, he wouldn't go. He, he'd, he'd sit there until he saw them. And, and yeah, exactly. You know, he um, he spoke two or three uh, languages fluently. He spoke Italian, French, whatever it took to to, to get the job done. You know, um, he he was just uh, he was an unbelievable man. Yeah. I mean, apart from the fact that he was in Formula One and what he did in Formula One, we all know about his history now. Mm. But as a man, he, he's just someone to be looked up to. A great indicator of, of the competitive human being that you are is that you, when you ultimately scored your first race win for them, you were, I'm sure there's a level of pride there, but also a little bit miffed because it wasn't their first win. You desperately wanted to give Williams its first win, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, in 1978, we were only a one-car team. And that little car should have won a Grand Prix. I should have won Long Beach in that car, but we had mechanical, uh, electrical problems. And um, of course, I knew what we were all going through. I, you know, I knew the sacrifices that Frank and Patrick made, and uh, and you know what we were, what the work we were putting in, and what we were going through to, to get that elusive win. I mean, we were super happy to get on the podium, but and also, of course, when you get points, it helps financially mm-hmm. to uh, further the development in the car, whether it be this one or the next one. Mm-hmm. So I desperately wanted to give Frankie's first Grand Prix victory. And just to rub uh, salt into wounds, I mean, I was leading the race by 20 seconds. I had it in the bag. I was doing it easy. Mm. And that stupid bloody water thing uh, cracked an inverter. And, um, I mean, I'm glad that Clay won and I'm glad that Williams won, but I was pissed off. (laughs) And I did something which is probably a bit naughty. I, I just jumped in the car and went back to London and I should have stayed around and help them celebrate but I, I just I, I couldn't do it I had to get out mm. record book says 12 you and I have had this conversation on the desk at Channel 10 many times should have been 13 tell me a, a little bit about um, with the benefit of time have people come to you and say I think it's the Spanish Grand Prix wasn't it was it was that the one that you you yeah. should have has someone said really you should have been you know formally given that oh absolutely I mean the people that know um I should have been. I mean, I went there on the Thursday. I did my practice on the Friday. I did my qualifying on the Saturday. Went there on the Sunday morning, did the warm-up, fronted up onto the grid, took the, went off and did the race, did the full distance, won the race, was given the trophy by King Carlos or whatever his name was. Juan Carlos. Um, 
And so I did the full catastrophe. I mean, I won the Spanish Grand Prix. Hmm. And blessed uh, Jean, Marie. I like to call him Jean Mary, but he's, I think his name's Jean Marie, but he, he was a bit of a lunatic. And I think, um, the, the if nothing else, I think the Senna documentary has vindicated me a little bit with that because he looks a complete tool in that. Hmm. You know, the, the true colours of him came out. But anyway, he stacked on a turn because his wife didn't have a chair or something. I don't know, but he declared the race null and void, um, which really pissed me off because that would have been A, more points, uh, and B, um, it would have been another Grand Prix on my CV. Mm. But the very next meeting was the French Grand Prix, and the two Ligiers were on the front row of the grid because they were all celebrating Saturday night and running around drinking <laughs> champagne and carrying on. And... Um, you know, we just uh, we just did a really good start and wore them down, wore them down, wore them down, wore them down, past Lafitte, past uh, uh, Peroni, uh, and ended up by winning the race. And um, when I pulled up, they gave me this huge Union Jack, which I went around on my slowdown lap, waving it in all their faces. And then when I went back to the podium, I wouldn't go up on the podium while he was still there because he was a megalomaniac anyway. So they asked him to please step down off the podium because it was TV, you know, for, for TV. Yes. <laughs> he was well pissed off at that. So, uh, you know, what goes around comes around. Having said that, I'd still rather have the Spanish Grand Prix on my CV. Most definitely, most definitely. Um, when you won that title in, in 1980, you were uh, the first Aussie at the time since the late great Sir Jack Brabham to do it. You're the last Australian to, to win the crown. Give people a sense of the kind of reaction it had back here because now we're in this internet age where stories pop up immediately. There's something on social media, immediately something like that happens. A bit different then. We, you've got to wait for magazines or newspapers and so on. I mean, did you get a did you get a phone call from... Who would it, Malcolm Fraser probably was the PM back then, was he? In oh, Australia. I did, I did, absolutely. He gave me an MBE. <laughs> um, he was a real enthusiast. Oh, I liked old Malcolm. Plus also he was a Simmental breeder. So I was breeding Simmental cattle as well. But... Um, no, um, it, it, I mean, I think I was just at the beginning where Aussies were starting to get it on TV. Yeah. And I, I have people coming up to me now and saying, oh, you were the reason I was up late and all that sort Excellent. of business. Excellent. And in that respect, I was probably just a tad early. Yeah. But in one respect, in my own mind, I'm probably a bit glad because I don't know whether I could stand this bullshit at the moment. Like all this social media, you know, or Fred Friendly on his mother's armchair down in her basement, you know, on his laptop what but being as brave as buggery um, you know I just don't know whether I could cop all that to mm. be honest mm. what about the car that year I mean you you were in Saudi Arabia not all that long ago for the race they had some cars doing demonstration laps I think with David Coulthard and maybe Damon Hill they, just, yeah, they sounded amazing what sort of memories does the car of that year evoke for you well, my car sounded really good. I mean, I often people come up to me, and even I think it was uh, even Jonathan Palmer or somebody said to me not so long ago, your car always sounded good. And I think it was because Patrick had the exhaust coming out from obviously the side of the engine, because that's where they come out of. Uh, but he had them wrapped around to come under the under the wing, and I think that gave them a pretty distinctive sound. And I think Patrick was one of the very first people to cotton onto the idea that the hot fumes from the exhaust underneath the wing probably helped it uh, be a bit more uh, efficient and I don't think anyone ever cottoned onto that they, they, they thought we just had the exhaust there to get it out of the way of the airflow from under the car but no it always sounded good you got to meet Enzo Ferrari and there were I think two opportunities with them that sadly did not come to pass weren't there well yeah I um 
I, 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 I was very fortunate to meet Enzo Ferrari. I mean, I, I am a major enthusiast. I'm, I am a major car person. So, you know, when you have the opportunity to, to meet someone like Enzo Ferrari, it's a, it's a thrill. Mm. And um, I, uh, I got a phone call from uh, Montezemolo after I'd won the 77 Austrian Grand Prix. And he said, uh, what have you got lined up for next year? And I said, well, nothing at this stage. And that's, of course, when I decided to do K&M. That's yeah. why I, I thought, well, at least I'll tee up something. And he said, oh, you know, he asked me a really silly question. Would you like to drive for Ferrari? Well, hello. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> name me one Grand Prix driver that would say no to that. So anyway, I said, yes, of course, I'd love to. He said, all right, well, we'd like you to come over to um, uh, uh, Italy and meet Mr. Ferrari and have a talk. And I said, what time would you like me to leave? And um, he said, but we must keep it very secret because um, uh, we don't want people to, to know about it because when we sign you up, we'd like it to be like a, a surprise, surprise or whatever. He said, so if you fly into uh, Milan, we'll have somebody from the factory pick you up and drive you down and you can meet Mr. Ferrari and we'll, we'll talk about it. So, but, you know, keep it secret. So I landed in Milan got off the plane, got into the uh, area, and here's this bloke in a pale blue pair of overalls, a huge, with Ferrari written all over him, with a big sign above his head, Alan Jones. (laughs) So I mean, like, Harry the Goose would know, hello, what's going on here? So he whacked me in this uh, prototype Ferrari, took me down to uh, Modena, and um, there I got out and met uh, Signor Lardi, Piero Lardi. He was in a Fiat 500, and I thought, well, who's this shit kicker? You know, and uh, little did I know that he was Ferrari's son. And um, so he took me around and I went to the uh, villa where Ferrari used to have his office, which was right in the middle of Ferrano, the test track. So I sat in the waiting room and the big double, very theatric, you know, big double doors opened up and I went in there and here he is behind the desk, as white as a sheet. And I thought, geez, he's not a well man. <laughs> Uh, anyway, he, he asked me all these questions, and Montezemolo hit the nail on the head. He said, he will ask you, why do you want to drive for Ferrari, blah, blah. And that's exactly what he did. And Montezemolo said, this is what you'll say. Oh, you'd workshop the answers. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Um, you know, would you be prepared to live in Italy? And I said, I'd live on the, I'd live on the North Pole. <laughs> uh, you know, what... What do you think you can do with Ferrari? You know, with you, I'm doing a bit of crawling. Yeah, yeah. Well, with your car, sir, I think I could become world champion. You know, blah blah. This is all the bullshit they want to hear. You know, so uh, I ended up by actually signing a contract. And he said, if we, I, I, I'll level with you. He didn't say at this stage. I'd kicked out by this stage. I saw him do. I was back with Lardy. Uh, we are trying to get a North American driver for our sales. We are talking to Mr. Andretti. If Mr. Andretti doesn't sign with us, we'd like you to sign. Mm-hmm. But I'd already signed, so we will activate your contract. I said, okay, f- that's great. So I went. I used to go down to one of the train stations in London because for whatever reason, Autosport used to come out early. And I picked it up and Andretti signs, re-signs or signs for Lotus. And I went, oh, yeah, I'm a Ferrari driver. Didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks and I thought, this is very strange. So I eventually phoned them up and they said, well... You know how we told you we wanted a North American driver? I said, yeah. Well, we have signed Mr Villeneuve. Mm-hmm. I went, oh, okay. I didn't even know he was in the in the scale of things. So that's what happened. And they signed Villeneuve, and I immediately got on the phone to Frank and said, I've been giving a lot of thought to this. I'd, I'd love to drive for you. <laughs> At that stage, wanting to drive for Frank Williams versus Ferrari were two di- very different things. 
So anyway, as it turned out, it was it was the best thing that ever happened to nice me because uh, mm. they gave me a great car. And then every time, as I've said this a hundred times, every time I used to out qualify the Ferraris, I'd drive down pit lane and give them a little bit of a wave. <laughs> and it might have only been with one finger, but it was a wave. Mm. And um, you know, that, so that was very enjoyable. And but I think that yes, everyone would like to drive a Ferrari, but I'm really happy I ended up going with Frank because mm. um, we grew together. We, we created a legacy uh, and it's something I'll never never regret. It was an amazing decision. Um, Didier Peroni, I think, was the other opportunity with them, I think, was it not, that, uh, with, with Ferrari? Uh, was it, was uh, it, was it, I'm trying to remember I the... the yeah. All I know is I didn't think there was any other people. Mm. I naively just thought it was me because they, because they foolishly said that to me. No, I meant, I meant um, back when you were in Australia, when, you, when you'd stopped... Uh, in that brief period after 81 in the sport and, the, and they, they were trying to contact you on the farm weren't they they were trying to ring you to see if you would you would uh, join the red, the famous red team then I think as well no, I was they? up here in, on the Gold Coast oh, okay. and um, it's amazing what goes around comes around isn't it like uh, at the end of the day if we can't get Mr Andretti we would like you and then when Peroni had his shunt they phoned me up and said we would like you to come back and drive the car for the rest of the year mm. uh, are you interested and I said yes which of course at that point I really wasn't but I thought I'll fuck them around because um <laughs> Yeah, you because know, I'm a Scorpio and I yeah. cut my nose off to spite my face and, yeah. um, and and that's exactly what I did and in the end guess who they got Mr Andretti mm. and then the bugger went and put it on pole at Monza and I thought oh no <laughs> Jones's Law is at work again yeah. you know the, uh, the thing for me I'm not a massive believer in regret right you made the best decision that you have at the time yeah. When you look back on it now, that, that that period that you spent away from the sport before you before you came back in the early eighties, there, would you change that? Would you do that differently? I mean, you went you went off on the farm and and you know escaped it for a, for a time. What you know? How do you compartmentalise that now? Well, you do what you do at the time you do it. You know, I mean, uh, and there's probably on reflection, yes, I probably did knock it on the head a bit early because mm. uh, I soon realised I wasn't a bloody farmer. That's for sure. Um, and so, and that's why I was on the farm and I broke my hip. I got bloody bucked off a horse mm. and I was in hospital and Jackie Oliver rung me up and said, um, we've got this multi-trillionaire that's putting money into the team. We want you to come back and be number one. Mm. And I, I thought, as because I'm a little prostitute, and I said, well, how much? <laughs> <laughs> and he, he gave me some figure and I went, well, you know, okay, well, when do you want me on the plane? Mm. So I... I still had a bloody uh, pin in my hips because I broke my femur. So I went over. The, the, the race was at Long Beach, so we went to uh, this little little track just uh, east of uh, LA. Mm-hmm. I can't think of the name right now. But I drove the car and it felt all right, you know, no dramas. And uh, I don't even know where I finished in that race. It really wasn't up in the top ten anyway, I don't think. And then the next race was at Brands Hatch, Race of Champions, and I got second or third. Mm. And then... Um, he said, right, well, the next race is uh, Paul Ricard. And I said, yeah, th- that's okay, fair enough, but where's this Trinidad bloke? What's, what's happening with the dough, Jackie? Um, and just to show you what a complete idiot I am, I, I knocked him back because I said, no, I'm not going anywhere unless I see some dough. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, Ron Dennis rang me up and said, um, oh, um, Nicky has got the flu. He doesn't know whether he'll be able to drive. Um if you come down to Monaco, we'll give you X amount of dollars if you drive. And if you don't drive, we'll give you Y amount of dollars. So it's a paid trip to Monaco. You'll get some, you get a few bob in your pocket anyway, uh, blah, blah, blah. 
uh, I, I phoned up my then wife um, and then I, I decided because of that, uh, no, nah, I'm going home. <laughs> and so you uh, could have driven for McLaren. Yeah, at Monaco. Uh, and, and had I have not, I still would have got a few bob. So uh, just another good Jones decision yeah. <laughs> along the way. One thing I think that does, though, illustrate is something that you've more or less lived by right uh, uh, along the way, particularly in a, in a contractual sense. It, it's, it's um, I think you've often said to me it's about being paid what you agreed on, being paid on time and no more, no less kind of thing. You, that, that's, you've had that sort of ethos, haven't you? Well, that's, that's, you asked my wife. I mean, that's one of my favourite sayings. I don't want any more. I don't want any less. I just want what the deal is. Mm. Hold on to my deal. All I'm asking is you want your deal. If you're late, you'll, I'll have, you'll have me on your, your doorstep. You know, if I do anything, you feel free to have a go at me. And that's, I think that's, that's a fairly simple sort of an ethos to live by. I think that... Um, that's all I ask. That's the end of part one of my podcast with 1980 F1 world champion Alan Jones, all part of a special limited release to celebrate the return of the Australian Grand Prix after two years in park because of the pandemic. Now, as is our policy, part two is in the library and ready for you to enjoy right now. So if you want to shift it into gear, you'll enjoy some recollections of his work with the late Daryl Eastlake and Barry Sheen at Channel 9 covering Formula One, giving Ferrari the runaround when they wanted him to come back and drive for the famous Red Squad, memories of racing the old Nürburgring and winning at Hockenheim, plus a Tassie tussle with Wayne Gardner and Mark Scaife, and racing the Ford Sierra RS500 Cosworth. Listener.